we hope you're having a great day. We're uh, enjoying the beauty of the sunshine outside, and hopefully the weather's, you get a chance this afternoon, maybe get out after you take a nap. And don't do it right now, but you can do that later. We're glad you're here, and uh, hey, as you're praying for that trip to Thailand, would you be praying also for Pastor Kevin? He's in Japan right now, and checking out some mission opportunities there, so be praying for him, and, uh, and God bless both those trips. Last week, we started our series talking about the historicity of Jesus, that he lived, and that he is who he claimed to be, and we're going to try to take that a step further today. You know, if people want to deny the historical Jesus... One of the ways they do that is they, they try to deny certain aspects of who he is or what he did. Like, for instance, his miracles. You know, they would say, there, there's no way, there, no way he healed the sick like the Bible says. It's just stories. Absolutely no way he raised somebody from the dead. That's just stories. They're either completely made up or the guys telling them got them wrong. You know, they, they were deceived themselves or they were deluded. I mean, you hear it all. Sometimes people ask, well, doesn't science rule out miracles? Well, no. Science typically depends on verifiable, repeatable experimentation. Miracles are by definition, by nature, unrepeatable. They're the result of God supernaturally suspending or transcending the the created order and the laws of nature. So no, science hasn't ruled out miracles. As someone said, the scientific method is useful for studying nature, but not supernature. See, our God, he's outside, over, and above natural law, and he's not bound by it. The God of Scripture is an almighty God. He'd have no problem getting the great fish to swallow Jonah, or, or Jonah to swallow the great fish. And he can do it all. He, he can and will transcend the laws of nature to accomplish his purposes in the world. And there are a number of logical reasons we can be confident that the miracles that Jesus did occurred just as the Bible records them for us. First of all, we know there were a lot of witnesses who were still alive when, when, when the Gospels were written. And so the elapsed time between Jesus miraculous public ministry and the writing of the gospels isn't sufficient for the development of legend and many eyewitnesses to Jesus miracles would have still been alive at the time the gospels came out so it would have been easy to refute any untrue miracle accounts there's too many witnesses You also have to take into account the character of the men involved. We have to recognize what quality character the men who witnessed these miracles had. Peter, James, and John, for instance. These were men of high moral character. They didn't go around just making up stories to deceive people. And then that they would also go to the point of giving up their own lives for this. No one gives up their life for what they know to be a lie. These are men of high moral character. We also have the fact that there's hostile witnesses who didn't fight back, who provided no dispute. Hostile witnesses to the miracles of Jesus. You know, like for instance, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when he raised Lazarus, none of the chief priests or the Pharisees disputed the miracle. 
Would have been sort of crazy to do that, wouldn't it? I mean, because Lazarus is walking around. Lazarus is talking and he's eating with people. So it would have been crazy. And they didn't do that. John 11 tells us, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things what Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. These guys are so nervous about this. And they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. He's doing many miracles. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they they weren't denying that he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And, And we know if they could have, they would have. Instead, their goal is simply to stop Jesus. And because there's so many hostile witnesses around who are observing and scrutinizing Jesus with every move he makes, fabricating miracle stories in his ministry would have been impossible. But people still try to deny it happened. Right after I graduated from high school, I, I decided I'd go to a community college, um, get a couple of years out of the way before I transferred. Uh, and so I was just taking all these general courses. And this, this college, though, was affiliated with a particular denomination and, and a denomination that a lot of times didn't, doesn't hold to as a high a view of Scripture as, as we would, would tend to do. So uh, I, I wasn't really interested in taking too many of their Bible or religion courses, but I decided to take a couple just to see what they're saying. And so I, I signed up uh, for a comparative religions course one semester and, and uh, got in the class and realized that the professor, he wasn't really interested in teaching comparative religions. He, he spent the entire semester bashing Christianity. That's, the, that's all about it. And, and I pre- remember particularly him spending time uh, trying to explain the miracles and basically his approach was to explain them away and and so for instance he he took the the miracle of Jesus walking on the water and he he gave these you know they're really old worn out explanations but this that the people have thrown out for years and so his take was well the disciples mistook what was going on there that Jesus was near enough to shore that he could walk on rocks and it looked like to them that he was walking on water. And I'm like, okay, there, there's a number of problems with that, obviously. First of all, just from a logical standpoint, if you've ever been out in the, you know, on a, by a stream or anywhere and you decide to walk on rocks across the stream, you know what that looks like, right? It's not the same thing, right, as walking. It's nice and smooth, Okay. You're, you're trying to get balance on every rock. You're slipping. You know, you're, taking, you're telling me the disciples couldn't tell the difference between Jesus simply walking and walking on rocks. I think they knew enough to know the difference. But there are other issues there. First of all, you've got the issue with the text. If you're going to take that viewpoint, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, the boat was already a long distance from the land. Battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. A long way from the shore. So you've got a problem with the text. If you're taking that explanation, you have to say the text is wrong because the text tells us they're not near the shore. You've got to have a problem, too, with the experts. 
And by, by that, I mean the disciples. A number of the disciples were fishermen. They knew the Sea of Galilee. They had spent years on it. They were experts. They would have known if they were near enough to shore so that someone could walk on rocks to them. So if you're going to say, go with that view, you've got to think that these experts were all messed up on, on where they were, and you know better than they did where they were at. That explanation just makes no logical sense. So why do people do that? Why do they use arguments like these that don't add up to deny the miracles? I think it's simply because the miracles don't only have to do with that moment in time and that incident. They have to do with who Jesus is. They say something about him. Nicodemus understood that. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, who was curious about Jesus, who was maybe even sort of sympathetic to Jesus, but he wasn't a follower yet. And he came to him, and this is what we read in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs, no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So here's a guy who's not a follower, but he's seen Jesus do miracles and he gets, he understands that these miracles say something about who Jesus is. These miracles point out the fact that Jesus is from God. See, the real reason people dispute the miracles is is not primarily because the miracles are inconceivable to anyone. It's because they are confirmation of who Jesus claims to be. And if he is who he claims to be, there are incredible ramifications for our lives. Take, for instance, one of the best known miracles that Jesus ever performed. Let's just look at it for a little bit. The story of the feeding of the 5,000. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 6. It's a great story. It's the one miracle along with the resurrection that's included in all four Gospels. So, great story. Let's just read it here, beginning in verse 1, John 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy meat so that these may eat? Buy bread, excuse me, so that these may eat. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus 
had been under a lot of pressure. He had done some miracles. People were starting to follow him. The crowds, he had two groups following him around. He had the people that were just after, just all wrapped up in the fact that he's doing all these miracles. He also had people who now are really fed up with the fact that he's doing these miracles and want him dead. And so he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side's the east side because everything that happens on the other side is always the east side of the Sea of Galilee because all the Jewish activity is on the west side. Jesus goes to the east side to get away from the pressure. And there he is. He goes up on a mountain. He's there with his disciples. And the crowd has come around the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're following. They're going to where Jesus is at. He sees this big crowd coming. Coming because they had all seen the signs he's performing. Coming because maybe they were sick and wanted healing. Some maybe had friends that wanted healed. If he asked the people that were there that day, why they had come. I imagine there was as many answers as there were people. Everybody had their own reason, all based on the signs he was performing. And Jesus sees this crowd coming, and he turns to Philip, and he asks him, and we know he says, it says here he tested him because he knew what he was about to do. He turns to Philip, and he asks him, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? So my question is, why Philip? Why would he ask Philip these questions? Why not someone else? Well, Philip is a guy who seems to have some administrative responsibilities. He's, he's, he's a bit of a bean counter, and maybe part of what he normally did was arrange meals and shelter. Seems like he was always concerned about protocol, always looking at all the factors involved in every situation. He's, he's the guy in every meeting that says, I don't think we can do that. I don't think it will work. And so Philip, to him, everything pretty much fell into that category. So Jesus tests him. He asks him, hey, have you figured this out yet, Philip? How are we going to feed these people? And Philip, being the numbers guy, probably had been, already been counting heads. He, he knows this is an impossible situation. This is a huge crowd. 5,000 men. And Matthew tells us that there were also women and children there. So there may have been as many as 20,000 people there. And he's looking at that and he's looking, he calculated it all up and he's looked at what they have in, in, their, in their resources. He sort of gathered all the apostles together and what do we have money-wise? Oh, we've got 200 denarii between all of us. A denarius being a day's wage for a common laborer. So we've, we've got a little bit of money here, but it's not near enough. It's impossible to feed this many people. It's impossible. You ever been there? When you're looking at the circumstances and no matter what you see, it all just seems impossible and dealing with it looks impossible and you get overwhelmed with the problem. You ever get overwhelmed? That's what Philip is feeling right now. Of course, Philip... He had already had enough evidence that, that he knows about that he could have been thinking differently about this. He could have been thinking, you know, maybe, maybe there's something Jesus could do here. I can't do anything, but maybe Jesus can. I mean, Philip could have been thinking, you know, you know what? I, I saw Jesus turn water into wine at the, Cana, at the wedding in, in Cana. I saw that happen. It was amazing. Maybe, maybe Jesus could do something here. He could have been thinking, you know what, I, I've been taught since I was a child about what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness and how they were fed manna. I've known that story all along. Maybe could, could God provide here like that? He could, he could have been thinking that way. 
He could have been saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to leave this in your hands and see what you can do. But Philip, he's just so wrapped up in the moment and the numbers and the odds seem stacked. There's nothing that can be done. And then along comes Andrew. He's bringing a, a, a boy with him, a boy with two fish and five loaves. Andrew. Andrew's not a guy we hear a lot about. Apart from the listing of the apostles' names, his name only appears like nine times in the Gospels. Nine times, and a number of those, is, his name is just in passing. He's in the background a lot. He doesn't seem to mind about it, though. He doesn't begrudge his brother Peter's dominance. You know, he, he knew Peter's character. They'd grown up together. He, he knew Peter would take charge. But Andrew's the guy still, even though he knew Peter would be the sort of the lead dog, he's the guy that brought Peter to Jesus anyway. He always seems to have the right heart for ministry. He wasn't trying to be the center of attention. He just wanted to use the gifts he'd been given and serve God in whatever way he could. He wasn't impetuous like Peter. He wasn't brash like James and John. You know, the guys who were called the sons of thunder. Who wanted, you know, remember they wanted to know who'd be the greatest? Wasn't that way with Andrew. When he speaks, which isn't often, he always seems to say the right thing. Even though his style of leadership is completely different from Peter's, he's perfectly suited for leading in his own way. He's proof that you can lead strongly while leading quietly. And he's always bringing people to Jesus. He does it again here. He brings this boy. <laughs> Think what it must have been like that day for that, that little boy. I mean, he probably had got up that morning thinking he's just going to go out and go fishing for the day or go play with his friends or whatever. And he's headed out the door. And just as, he, as he's heading out the door, his mom's hollering at him, Hey, did you pack a lunch? Oh, mom, you know, and, and he's, she's like, you know, you can't go out for the day without taking some food. When you get back in here, sit down, let me get you something to take with you. And so she starts packing him a lunch. She pulls out the basket. She prepares him a lunch of five loaves and two fish, five barley loaves. You know, barley doesn't even sound good, does it? <laughs> Thanks, mom. You know, um, and it, and it wasn't good tasting. It was, a, it, was, it was a staple for the poor in the Roman times. It was all they could afford. And Andrew, he, you know, he's probably never, well, had no clue what Jesus would do with that lunch. But he seems, at least, to have some faith that Jesus maybe could do something here. And, and, and you can just hear it, think of the, imagine the other disciples as Andrew brings this little boy with his lunch. Like, nice going, Andrew. Way to go. Yeah, this is going to go a long way. We got 20,000 people here. You want us to use this little lunch. What are you thinking? And you, you know Philip's sure not buying into this because the situation from a human perspective was just flat out impossible. Sometimes we are confronted in our lives with the flat out impossible, right? And when that happens, 
sometimes we can get that deer in the headlights look. You know, uh-oh. And I don't know which way to go. I don't know which direction to turn. And we just stand there. You know what happens to deer in the headlights, right? It's not good. Philip needed to learn that lesson. Sometimes we do too. And so here's what happens. Jesus says, have the people sit down. We're told there was much grass there. Have the people sit down. There's much grass. Mark tells us the grass was green. (laughs) I love getting little details like that. It just paints the picture for us what the day was like. The grass was green because it was Passover time. They hadn't gone through the summer yet and burned out the grass. So Jesus with this crowd of people caring about them, sits them down in green grass and he took the loaves, we're told, and he gave thanks and he began to distribute the food. Took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed the food. Pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, the impossible situation, 20,000 people, this is all we got. We need some huge thing to happen. Jesus takes the loaf, he gave thanks, began to distribute the food. No razzmatazz, no, no special pleading, no dramatic crying out to God. Just Jesus taking the food, gives thanks, start tanning out the food. And right in front of their eyes, the food just keeps on coming as much as they wanted. It was a buffet. All you can eat. And these, these people are filled. They're, they're, they're so satisfied. Some of them probably had a hard time getting up from the ground, you know. And they're filled. And they gather up the leftover fragments. That was customary at Jewish meals. The rabbis taught you should, you should gather up anything larger than an olive. So customary. But I think there's another reason Jesus does this here. He wants them to gather it up so that he could show those people and that he could show us that God's supply never runs out. That there's always more than we need. He can do the impossible and there's still more than we need. People are really impressed. 12 baskets full of food. Where did that come from? And they see that and they know Jesus just did a miracle, this sign. So they believe this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, where there's, it's prophesied that a prophet would come who, who was like Moses. And they said, this is fulfillment of that. And you know what? They're absolutely right. This is that prophet. And so they, they're excited. And verse 15, we read, so Jesus perceiving that they were intended to come, and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. So they want to take him now and make him king because they want someone who gives out free food and heals the sick and can overthrow the Romans. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like some of our presidential candidates, you know? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, they still don't have the right reason for following him. So we're told that Jesus withdrew again to the mountains 
by himself alone. And I wonder, why did John write by himself alone? I mean, he could have just said he withdrew by himself. He could have just said he withdrew alone. But he said he withdrew by himself alone. He's stressing, I think, the solitude, how completely alone he was by himself alone. And he's stressing the contrast to the thousands of people who have been there, all these now very full people, people who wanted to make him king. He had an automatic army if he wanted it. I think Jesus would have been very much satisfied having these people follow him if they were following him for the right reasons but they're not. And he's trying to show them the right reasons. He, but he has a higher priority than being popular. He would rather be alone than have them continue to follow him for the wrong reasons. And I got to tell you, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a believer in Christ, you've got to appreciate what you see here in him. I mean, what leader would step away from an opportunity like he had here? He could be their king. It would, it would have been handed to him, but he's unswerving in his purpose, faithful to the end. I mean, you've got to appreciate that. So what was this miracle all about? Was it about full stomachs? I think that was a, a part of it, a small part of it. We know Jesus, we're told, felt compassion on them by Mark. Jesus felt compassion on them. They were people like sheep without a shepherd. So I think he, he felt compassion on them, felt for their needs physically. But that's just a small part. I think he gives us the real purpose in verse 35. Where we're told this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He says to these people, hey, this is, that's, this is the purpose. That's what this miracle was supposed to show. More than God being able to supply for them, this miracle is supposed to show that he is the supply. That's what it's all about. Jesus is the bread of life that brings life. You, you, you don't need a steady supply of bread for the rest of your life. You need bread that gives life, life eternal. Jesus says, come to me and you'll never hunger, and you'll never thirst. And what Jesus wants us to see is we're before. When, we're, when we don't have him, we're in an impossible situation. The numbers are stacked against us, and we don't have the resources to take care of it. And we can try to fill our lives with all kinds of options that will satisfy us and give us lasting meaning and purpose in life. And some of it gives us some satisfaction for a time, but none of it gives us satisfaction for eternity. There's only one option that actually brings us life. This miracle was done so that we would recognize that we can go through life empty or we can come to him and be filled. 
did the historical Jesus perform the miracles that are recorded for us in Scripture? Absolutely. And we're so glad because they tell us who he is. And this one tells us he's the bread of life. You want life? You want eternal life? Turn to him. Ask him to come into your life. And he fills you. He fills you and there's more than enough for what you need. If you haven't taken that step, it's the best step you could ever take in life. Make that choice. If you have questions about it, you want to talk to somebody about it, in just a couple minutes here, we're going to close the service. And there's a room right back here, what we call room one, where there'll be pastors there. They would be glad to take time to answer any questions you have about that. What's it mean to give my life to Christ? What's it mean to be forgiven? What's it mean to have eternal life? You come and ask them. They will talk with you about that. Maybe you've already come to him for salvation. But right now, you've got stuff going on where you find yourself in what seems like an impossible situation. You came to him once for, 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 for salvation, and you know what? He gave you life. He gave you life abundantly. He gave you a life that's more than enough. You can trust him in whatever you're facing right now. It may look impossible, but he can supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And it will be more than enough. The historical Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has and is what you need. Whether it's that most important decision of salvation, you can come to him. He'll provide it for you. Set you up for eternity. Or you're facing something in life right now that seems impossible. Come to him. He has and is what you need. You stay with me. We'll pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace, your love. Thank you for uh, your son's willingness to come and, and not only live out his life here on earth, but demonstrate for us through his teachings, through the things he did, through the miracles he performed, who he is. And, and God, how that impacts us. Thank you, God, that we know him to be the bread of life, that he's given to so many of us here uh, eternal life. And for those, Father, who haven't taken that step, God, help them today to, to find the answer, to take that step. And for others of us, God, who may be just facing other impossible, seemingly impossible situations, that we be able to trust you and know, God, your provision. We thank you for loving us today. Thank you for a beautiful day outside, God. We pray you'd bless us as we faithfully serve you. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks so much. Have, see you next Sunday.